Hey, so as we continue today, um, we, we're just, we started last week our series uh, called um, Long Story Short. You go ahead and bring up the, there you go, thank you. Um, long story short, and, and what we're doing, we explained this last week, and here we are in week two. And what we're doing in this series is we are planting stakes in the ground, signposts, if you will, so that we can better understand the story of Scripture. What's happening in the Word? Remember, we talked about a couple of things last week in week one. We just focused on the first half of the first verse in the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Right? We spent, we spent a long time talking about uh, in the beginning, God. Yeah, those four words, right? We spent a long time talking about those four words. That in the beginning, there was God. And we talked about the character of God. This first stake in the ground, this first signpost, we talked about the character of God. This God who is pre-existent. This God who is self-existent. This God who has always been. We talked about the fact that this God is powerful. You heard David talk about the majesty of God and the power of his voice as he, as he forms the universe by spoken word. You know what? David's talking about all of these galaxies and, and stars and all of the universe. You know what? God's word does not return void. He spoke it into existence and it happens. This is a God who is powerful. He is all-knowing. He is ever-present. At the same time, He's just, and he's gentle, and he loves. And here's what we found out about God last week in this first signpost, is this God who spoke everything into existence, and we're going to deal with that today. This God, he is personal, and he wants to be known. And he's personal. We talked about this in four ways, right? Where's Lola at? Four ways, Lowell. I'm going to give them all to you right here. He told me last week I forgot one. So I'm going to give you all four now. So you can go back to your notes. I know you took copious notes last week. Right? And I know you carry them with you all the time. Pull them out of your wallet. Unfold them. And you can fill in all four. One. Here's... Oh. All right. Brent's like, yeah, I got it right here. Deal with it. Here's what I've learned at Blessed Hope Community Church. You don't challenge Brent Gator. I remember once talking about, like, who would wear a suit to church? And then the next week, Brent was there in a suit, just because he could. And he nailed it. But anyway, here's the deal. Way one, that God is personal and wants to be known, that we can know God. Way one is through his word, right? He gives us his word. It's, it's the word become flesh in Jesus Christ. He gives us this word, this living and active word that that will teach us and rebuke us and correct us and encourage us and move us. Two, God can be known through the word become flesh. Jesus Christ, God incarnate. The heart of God can be known, three, through the cross. The cross of Christ where God willingly sends his one and only son who willingly, God in flesh, lays down his life so that we can be free from our sinfulness. And four, 
God is personal to us through the Holy Spirit that dwells inside the new creation, the believer, those that have turned to Christ. You heard Mark talk about those 10 kids that made decisions to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit now personally lives inside of them. Right? God can be known to us. God wants to be known to us. He is a personal God. Signpost one is simply that. Um, in the beginning, God. God is the author of the Bible. God is the main character of Scripture. Listen to me. It is great for you to read the Bible, and it is great for you to pull out application for yourself. But the Bible is not about you. And when you read the Bible, assuming that it is about you, you are missing something because the Bible is not about you. God is the author of Scripture, the creator of life. It is His story. Signpost one, and then we move on. Man, we are moving so far. We're going to get to the second half of the first verse in the first book of the Bible, and then like the rest of the chapter. But we're just going to keep going with signposts. And, And signpost one is God, that he is personal and powerful, and he can be known. And signpost two is this. He creates all of it. He creates everything. And so, so here's, here's something that happens, though, with Christians in today's culture. And listen, I love Christians in today's culture. Brothers and sisters in Christ. But man, are we illiterate when it comes to Scripture. I mean, I love you. And I'm not talking like you personally. Um, I love me too. I, we are illiterate when it comes to Scripture. We know some things just enough to be dangerous and just enough to screw it all up, right? Because here's the thing. If you ask Christians, right, we, we shared some research last week. There's more. It, 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 Barna does polls. If we ask Christians um, about the origins of creation, Christians, by and large, will say God is the author of creation. And we would look at that one thing and we would say, yes, Christians understand But then as they start to answer other questions about creation, what we see is that they don't really believe that God is the author of creation. They know they're supposed to, right? But what they actually believe about creation is this hodgepodge of wisdom from the world. Things about big bangs, things about uh, about evolution and single-celled organisms evolving into more complex organisms, evolving into more complex organisms. And, and what we, we end up with are Christians who know that they're supposed to say that God creates everything, but in actuality, what they believe is what the world has been teaching them about the origins of the world. And here's the deal. I, I promise you that matters, right? And, and so we're going to try to do three things today. We're going to try to do three things today as we deal with this signpost. One, we're going to answer the question, do we really believe that God created everything? Um, You can answer it with me right now, uh, and we'll look in Scripture, but the answer is yes. We're going to answer the question, do we really believe that God created everything from nothing? You go ahead. Excellent. Um, And then here's the other question that will be a little bit more complex is, what difference does it make what we believe about creation? Why does it matter? We live in a, in, in a culture that at its best from the church attitude is this, let's live and let live. 
you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, and that'll be fine. And in a lot of ways, I get it. In a lot of ways, that makes sense. We often joke that, that David and I um, have different theological views on some minor doctrine. And you know what? In that instance, it's absolutely fine to have our conversations, have our, our debates, have our whatever, but at the end of the day, we can live and let live, right? We can do that, and it's okay. But when it comes to major doctrine, and it does not get a whole lot more major than what happens in Genesis 1, it's important for us to be on the same page. It's important for us to understand what happens and why it matters. And so, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to dig in, in theory. Um, I'll tell you this, as we get going, uh, the Bible and science are not going to contradict the Bible and science will never contradict each other. I said this last week um, as we were talking about God and truth and, and his character and his creation, all of it. The Bible and science will never contradict. Christians don't have to be scared of science. Anything that can be scientifically proven, listen carefully now, anything that can be scientifically proven is something that we Christians are on board with. Because guess what? If it can be scientifically proven, that is God's truth, right? God is the author of all of this. God is the author of all this. David talked about the speed of light and the complexity of gravity and the rotation and the axis and the spin, all of it. This earth is fine-tuned for life. God did that. When science shows us that, we don't look and say, oh, no, no, science is disproving God. We look at it and we say, oh, my goodness, look at the wonder of the creator as he's done this. But here's where we will have problems. The Bible will necessarily be at odds with what we would call scientific hypotheses. The Bible will never be at odds with things that are proven. The Bible will frequently be at odds with things that people hypothesize or say they wonder if this might be true. And the problem in our world, and this is where Satan is really tricky, the problem in our world is that we have been taught, many of you as students have been taught, many of our children are currently being taught, that some things that are scientific hypotheses, their best guesses based on somebody's worldview, we're being taught that these things are fact. And this is where we're going to be challenged a little bit. Right? So, so whenever we talk about creation, whenever we talk about the Bible, we are not talking about being in opposition to science. We're talking about being in opposition sometimes to our best scientific guesses. And this is what we're dealing with. And I'll say this too as we get in here. I'm not talking young earth or old earth. There are some of you here that believe the six days of creation in Scripture are six literal days. And that God created the world in six literal days. And on the seventh day, God literally rested. And that is the story of creation. And if you believe that, then you are what we would call a young earth creationist. And that's a biblical worldview. Good on you. Some of you believe that the earth is much, much, much older right? And, and here's what I want to say. You can believe that 
and still have a biblical perspective. You can still, you can believe that and still have a biblical worldview. Some of you believe that, that day one, as it's read in Genesis, actually took a really, really long time. You ever sat through the movie Ben-Hur? I probably told you this before, but man, when I was a kid, there used to be a Hogan's video and I had a new Nintendo and it was awesome and it was mine. I paid for it with my own money, right? That way I thought my parents, when they grounded me, they couldn't take away my Nintendo and they never did. They just took away my right to play it as they explained many times. But we had this Nintendo and, and games were expensive. So we loved to go to Hogan's video and rent video games for the weekend. And it was a Saturday morning and my brother and I were bugging my dad, let's go to Hogan's video. And he's watching TV and he says, I'll tell you what, boys, I will take you to the video store as soon as this movie is over. And for those of you that have seen Ben-Hur, you know what I'm talking about. Thing is like eight hours long. It got so bad and we're sitting there, we're watching this movie so excited for when it's over, talking about what game we're going to rent. It's going to be great. And, and then it gets to this point where you would assume the movie is over. And he says, well, that's about halfway. And there was like another three hours. Guys, it was terrible. Right? Some of you assume that the days of creation are like Ben-Hur. They just, they aren't 24 hours. They just go on and on and on forever right? That they're eons. That day one is millions or a billion years. Some of you might believe it's a 24-hour creation with an age before day two happens. Listen, I don't care if you believe in an old earth or a young earth, right? Because here's what I'm going to say. You can have a biblical worldview about creation regardless of what you believe about the age of the earth as long as, now listen, as long as you believe that God creates it. He does it with intention. He does it with purpose. And he does it from nothing. This is the reality of a biblical worldview when it comes to creation. Did it take a really long time? You know, if you ask me, I'm a young earth creationist. I believe in a literal understanding of Genesis 1 and 2. Am I mad at you if you think it took longer? No. But here's what we have to agree on. God creates right? He does it with purpose. He does it with precision. He does it with intention. And he does it, he does it from nothing. I was going to say from scratch, but when I say he does it from scratch, that's wrong, right? Like I made chili from scratch yesterday, which means I used a bunch of ingredients to make chili. When God creates, he doesn't do it from other ingredients. He creates from nothing, he just speaks it into existence. And so we're going to get into this a little bit here, but let's go ahead and jump in. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we kind of covered this yesterday. Pastor David's talked about this a lot already. We don't want to live here too long, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's the thing that I want you to know, that when God said this, he, he gave this to Moses, Moses who records the first five books of scripture for us. So this is history that God is giving Moses to record for us, right? God is giving this to us because he wants to definitively answer a question that he knows will be on our hearts. And, and he knows that we are going to ask the question, where do we come from? How did this all start? 
What's the point of life? What's the point of all of this? He knows that we're going to ask these questions. And so definitively, before we have the opportunity to ask these questions, he inspires Moses to write these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, this is never meant to be open to debate. This is never meant to be part of a conversation we have about what we believe or what we don't believe. God gives these words to Moses. Moses records them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture so that we can just know the truth. What's the truth? Where did we come from? How did all of this start? What's going on? Well, here's, here's how it starts. In the beginning, God created everything. How did we get here? Well, let me tell you how we got here. In the beginning, God created everything. But, but Matt, what, like, 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 how did we get here? Oh, okay, I get your question now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. And so we start to wrestle with this. This thing that was never supposed to be confusing, God just told us the answer. First verse of the first chapter of the first book of the word that God wrote answers this question for us definitively. And yet, somehow we've turned it into this big debate and, and, and question. But it was never supposed to be that. God, who is self-existent, always existed. God, who has always existed, creates everything from nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can open your Bibles to Genesis 1. We're, gonna, we're just going to read through this, and you're going to see how he does this. We're going to read about some of these days of creation. You can follow along the very complex sketch that's, it's not complex, that's, that's on um, the screen here, or you can just read it with me. The earth was formless and empty, starting in verse 2, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. It's the same Spirit of God that we read about in John 1. Right? When John says that, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in John 1.8, he says, and, and the Word became flesh. This is, this is that Spirit hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that there was light, and it was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. Evening passed, morning came, and that marked the first day. Starting in verse 6, then God said, let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And, and that is what happened, right? I love the matter of factness. God said, hey, let's do this. Let's let there be this space to separate the water of heaven from the water of earth. And then Moses is like, and so that's what happened. Because God said that's what should happen, and it happened. Called the space sky, evening passed, morning came, marking the second day, third day. Let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. That's what happened. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that's what happened. The land produced the vegetation. The seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind. God saw that it was good. Evening passed, morning came, marking the third day. Day four, God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And so that's what happened. God made two great lights. The larger one to rule the day. The smaller one to govern the night. He made the stars to 
He set the lights in the sty. He saw that it was good. Evening passed, morning came, marking the fourth day. Day five. Let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created the great sea. And every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Evening passed, morning came, marking the fifth day. Day six. Notice the intention. Notice the creativity. Notice the order. Right? God didn't just snap his fingers and it was all just a start-completed project. But he creates with order and precision. Day six. Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind. Livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, wild animals. And that's what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals. Livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And then God says this on day six. Let us make man in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the wild animals, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Day six. So the creation. Skip ahead to to chapter two here. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed on the seventh day. God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work and blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was on the seventh day when he rested from all his work of creation. See, I don't care if you believe it took a really long time. I don't care if you believe those days were literal 24-hour days. But you'll notice to have a biblical worldview when it comes to creation, to understand the stake that's driven in the ground, we have to understand that God creates intentionally. He creates with order. He creates all of this from nothing. And he creates mankind, men and women, as the apex of all of his creation. He creates birds and giant beasts that swim in the sea and fish. He creates all the sea life. He creates all of the winged creatures that fly. He creates all of the animals of the ground. He creates all of the great beasts and the things that scurry. He creates everything. And then he separates it. After he creates everything, he says, okay, now let's do this. Let's make man, woman, in our image. And so he does. Humankind is the only creation to be made specifically, uniquely in the image of God. It's not an accident. It's not a matter of progression of thousands of millions of billions of years. It's an intentional, purposeful decision where God says, now, At this moment, let's make mankind, humans, in our image. And through a specific act of creation, whether you think the earth is young or old doesn't matter, but through a specific act of creation, God makes mankind in his image. 
and he breathes life. It's intentional and it's purposeful. Right? And it's not up for debate. Or at least it wasn't intended to be up for debate. Moses writes this down in the first chapter of the first book of the Word of God, the book he gives us, and he says, look, I just want you to know, because I know your heart is going to ask the question, where do we come from? How did this all start? Where are my roots? And he says, all right, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you know. In the beginning, I was. And then at a certain point, I said, you know what? Let there be. And there was. And as the culmination, as the apex of that creation, I said, I want to make human beings in my own image. Right? In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You exist, right? The question that burns in our hearts, where do we come from? Why do we exist? What's happening is this. Because God decided as the apex, as the, as the finality, as the cherry on top of his creation, his glorious creation that points and screams to his glory, at, at, at the pinnacle of this, he said, we will make human beings. We'll make them in our image, and it's going to be awesome. And so he did. Genesis 1 answers the question, and it answers it with definitiveness. Yet here's the problem. Well, it, it answers it with definitive, and it answers it so well, right, that it is supposed to scream to the glory and the existence of God. Here's what, here's what David says in Psalm 19. He says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The sky displays his craftsmanship. Day after day, the heavens and the sky continue to speak. Night after night, they make God known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Like, hey, the very fact of creation, the very fact that life exists on this planet, the very fact that this world that is so fine-tuned for life to exist, all of those things that Pastor David talked about, all of that should scream to an entire world about the fact that there is a God who created it all. That there is a God in heaven, an intelligent designer, someone who set this all in motion. Remember last week we talked about atheists who would say, there is no God. We talked about agnostics who'd say, well, there must be a God, but there's no way we can know him. Right? But, but as Christians, there is a God who is personal that we can know and one of the things that we can know about him is that he set this all in motion. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. There is nobody that should look up at the night sky and be confused about the fact that there is a God who sets it all in motion. There is nobody that should take a long draw of fresh air that should not realize that there is a God who put that in motion. I mean, think about it. You're bringing in oxygen. You're pushing out CO2. All of that lush vegetation that God creatively made before he made people is taking in that CO2 and breathing out oxygen. Right? All of that. See, the Bible and science shouldn't be at odds, but the more we understand scientifically, the more we should say, the heavens proclaim the glory of God right? 
Paul says it this way, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible quality. So eternal power and divine nature, I'm sorry, um, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. The fact of creation testifies that God is real. There will be a time in judgment where some people will say, well, God, I didn't know you were real. I didn't believe you were real. I believed the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world that taught definitively is fact. Right? My third grade teacher told me. My ninth grade biology teacher. My... my, my, my 11th grade physics teacher, I don't know who, I mean, these are the people that told me. I don't know who told you guys. But I remember vividly in third grade. I remember vividly in ninth grade. And I remember vividly in 11th grade being lectured by, prof- or by professors, by teachers that would explain to me how science has definitively proven that life began from nothing, this big bang event, and evolved, and that evolution is necessarily true and been proven to be true, and this is what we need to know and understand. And so there will be people in judgment that will say to God, listen, I believed what the experts told me. I didn't know you were real. And and, and here's what God will say. Well, ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky You've seen everything I created. And through everything I've created, you can clearly see my invisible qualities, my eternal power, my divine nature. So you have no excuse for not knowing God. Right? God's creation, the fact of Genesis 1 and 2, right? We we look at, at, at signposts. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, powerful yet personal, Signpost two, God creates everything intentionally with purpose, and mankind is the apex of his creation. But the wisdom of the world clouds this. And so if we can get technical for just a second, I hate this part, but let's do it anyway. It's a little bit too luxury for me. Um, But here's what we have to do. We have to understand the terms. Because I want you to know what I had to learn the hard way, what our kids have to learn the hard way, what we have to teach them when they come home confused because of what they've learned, right? Um, The wisdom of the world will talk about evolution as fact, right? We aren't against science, but we're against unproven scientific hypotheses that fly in the face of Scripture, right? And evolution, the way that it's talked about, is one of them. Now, there is something called microevolution. And listen, we're all on board with microevolution. Microevolution makes sense. Microevolution finds its root in Scripture. Look at this. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal. And he already said this about the trees and, and, and the vegetation. Producing offspring of the same kind. Within a kind that God creates, there will be reproduction and reproducing. And over the course of a long period of time, there will be changes within that. Listen, people get taller. As a species, we are taller than we were 200 years ago, right? That's microevolution. It's small changes within a kind, right? It's within a kind, right? Like, you can have different variations of a hibiscus. That's a thing, right? 
Help me out. Yeah, it is. You can have different variations. Our farmers do this, probably. Right? As they breed certain animals for certain things. Right? Listen, at my house, I have a dog. They have bred the dog right out of her. Right? They have bred the dog right out of her. We have Charlie. She's a cockapoo. Right? She's not a dog. They bred that right out. Whatever. If you've met Charlie, you know what I'm talking about. It's the best kind of dog because she's not really one. Anyway, listen, I'm sorry. I know there's some of you that that made very upset. I know you love your dog, and I love that you love your dog. It's okay. But I don't, somebody said, I don't know what it was. Anyway, microevolution is this idea of small changes within a kind, right? And we can observe this. This has been observed. We know this, right? Certain bills for certain birds will grow longer in certain habitats so they can get at the insects easier in trees, right? Certain animals will develop different shades or hues of color so that they can blend in and camouflage better. So over the course of life cycles and generations of animals, we see these changes. That's microevolution. We've got no problem being on board with that. We see that. We affirm that. That's biblical, right? Changes according to a kind, right? Where we struggle is with the idea of macroevolution. Macroevolution refers to these large-scale changes from one kind, this is where it gets anti-biblical, from one kind to another kind. And God says, let them reproduce in their kind, right? But macroevolution is one kind to another. This is single-celled organisms that become some kind of aquatic life, that become fish, that become land animals, that become apes, that become people over the course of time. Now, here's the interesting thing about macroevolution, even though we've been taught and our kids are taught that it's true, that that we've proved this. There's no fact to it. It's strictly hypothesis. So here's what happens. Charles Darwin, way back when, observed microevolution in nature specifically in the Galapagos Islands. He observes microevolution because he is trying to figure out how life started and evolved without an intelligent designer. He hypothesizes, well, since I see microevolution changes within a kind, my, in his mind, reasonable hypothesis is that there could very likely be changes from one kind to another kind. And so when he publishes Origin of the Species, it's with facts that prove microevolution and hypothesis that says because this is true and because there's no other reasonable explanation, this macroevolution must also be true. And, and people bought it. Why? Because in a world without an, an intelligent designer... That's the best option. It is the best way to make sense of how life gets here if we don't believe in a God. It's the best way. 
right? And what they said is, well, as more of the archaeological um, record is unearthed, the more of the fossil record that we have, the more we discover, the more we see over the course of time, we will find evidence that will prove this to be true. The more scientific advances there are, we will find evidence that will show this to be true. But here's here's the problem. Never. We've never been able to find this to be true. We've never once found anything in the fossil record that's demonstrated this to be true. We've never once on a cellular level been able to create something that would take something from one kind and, and, and move it to another kind of something. We've never been able to do that. With all of the advancements and all of the, the, the fossil record available to us, never. But yet we're still taught, right? The wisdom of the age says, look, if you, if you don't believe in evolution, then there's something wrong with you. Right? You're arrogant. You're old-fashioned. You're a religious extremist. Or you're an idiot. I've been called all of those. But the simple fact of the matter is there, there is no evidence. And when, and when we push people, when you're having a conversation and you ask, show me evidence, here's what we always come back to. Well, we trust what we've been taught. We trust what we've been taught. That is the wisdom of this age that puts our biblical understanding as foolishness and elevates foolishness as truth. But if we know our signpost, then this won't matter. And, and, and by the way, here's just one little example of why this matters, right? Let's talk about abortion. We talk about abortion for just a second. We get one little example why this matters. Because if I believe that the baby that's growing inside of someone is just a glob of cells. Yes, living, but it's just a glob of cells. By random chance, naturally selected, whatever. Not made personally. Not made as the apex of God's creation. Not made in the very own image of God, but just cells. A glob of cells more advanced than other cells, sure, but just cells. Then then the ending of those cells really has no moral significance. But if I believe that that life intimately created by God and that life, human life, made in the very image of God as the crown jewel of creation, then, then I can believe something different about that life. And the ending of that life has deep moral significance. This signpost matters for a lot of reasons. Okay, and I don't want to linger here too long, but it's not just this. But, but then in science, here's the other thing we've been taught like it's true, is this idea of the Big Bang Theory. Right? It's not just a TV show. Right? It's an actual theory. Right? But the idea of the Big Bang is, is that in a world with no God, where Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 aren't real, they're not literal, Right? There's still the problem. Even if we believe in this mass evolution where we have one single-celled organism that somehow mutates and develops and grows and over the course of billions of years becomes us and the world that we live in, somehow we still have to explain how did we get a single-cell organism? How did we get life? How did life happen? Right? So we still have to answer that question. And so in a world devoid of God, the best answer for that question is, well, there must have been this cataclysmic event. 
that took all of these different non-living things, but there was this big event, this big explosion, this big whatever it was, and somehow through this big event, we created the building blocks of life. And then evolution took over. The problem is, this is taught as fact. But it can't happen. It's never happened. We've been, never been able to replicate it. You'll be taught that. You'll, you'll, you'll hear things about hadron colliders and billions of dollars of research. You'll, you'll hear about things called God particles and whatever else. And it's all true and all interesting stuff. But here's the thing. In, in all of that, what's not true is that we've never been able with all of our advances to take no life and create life. It's a thing of fiction. We can't do it. We can't create life where there was no life. They thought they had it back in the 50s when they discovered DNA. Uh, Francis Crick, and I forget who his partner was, but, but they thought when they discovered DNA and they saw this is the building blocks for life, this is how it happened. Aha, God's dead. They went on, they wrote books, they went on speaking tours at universities talking about how science has disproved the need for God. And, and through the, the, the discovery of DNA, they figured out how life began. And then they did about 30 more years of research on DNA. And in the 30 more years of research on DNA, they discovered that they were wrong. That DNA is so complex and coded for individual life that the odds of it happening, I wrote this down because I didn't want to forget, the odds of it happening naturally is a, hang on, got to find it. It's a one, one in 10, the odds of it happening naturally. DNA being specifically put together and coded for life, the specific life that it's for. One in 10 with 60 zeros on the end of it. That's a number I don't even know what it is. One in 10 with 60 zeros. Um, some mathematicians have done the, the math to tell us in layman's terms how probable that would be. Here's two examples. One, blindfolded. I set you at the foot of the Sahara Desert and release you. Blindfolded, you are to wander through the Sahara Desert and find one marked grain of sand. Three times. Right? You find it once, you're still only a third of the way there. We have to start all over again. You find it twice, you're like, wow, we're getting close. You still have to do it a third time. Or better yet, we know windstorms here, don't we? right? We know windstorms. It would be like a windstorm traveling through a junkyard and developing, like building through the windstorm, a fully functioning Boeing 747. Fully functioning. Not just the shell, but the guts and the internal organs of it, the, 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 the combustion. Fully functioning 747. Those numbers are so astronomically bad that here's what they decided. Francis Crick, the guy that went on speaking tours, in the 80s he wrote a book called Life Itself. Here's what he decided in his book, Life Itself. It could not possibly have happened by Big Bang. So his new explanation was we were seated here by a superior alien race. Like, no joke. It's in the book. Because he can't wrap his mind around or couldn't wrap his mind around the idea that there was an intelligent designer. Listen, I just want you to know this. We get to intellectually believe in the truth of the creation. 
One, we read it and we trust it by faith because God's word says so. Two, we can intellectually believe it because God's word shown to be true. And science will never disprove scripture. We will argue with scientific hypotheses that are devoid of truth, but we will never have a problem with actual science, with truth. Okay, last question. Why? So, yes, we believe that God created. Yes, we believe he created from nothing, and he did it personally, and we are the apex of his creation. But why? Well, then God blessed them. This is man and woman, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. The reason that we exist, right, the reason is because God brought us here to do two things, right, or to do them simultaneously, right? We are to conquer the earth. We're to subdue it. We're to cultivate it. This is called the cultural mandate. We be fruitful, multiply, spread out. Mankind was never intended to stay in the garden. Conquer the earth, reign over it. And all the while we reign over the earth, here's what we were to do. We were to do it walking in lockstep with our creator. Just as God used to walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, he was intending to walk with you because he is powerful and he is personal. And we're going to see as we get to the next signpost how that all gets jacked up. How it all gets jacked up. But, but signpost one, that there is this God and he is personal. And two, he has created all of this and created you. And you are intended to rule over his creation. And you are intended to do it while walking intimately with the God of the universe. That's why. You ever wonder why you exist? Why do I exist? What's my purpose? What's my passion? And we worry about our purpose and our passion and we try to figure it out like maybe switching careers will do the trick. Maybe getting a different education will somehow make it all go away. Maybe we were just meant to retire and stay home. Right? And then we retire and we stay home and we think this is terrible. Maybe I need to get a part-time job or volunteer somewhere. We, we, we worry, what's our purpose? What's our passion? Well, here's your purpose. The reason you were created. Right? The cultural mandate. Right? To govern this and to do it while walking intimately with God. And we're going to get into, as we hit more signposts, what that should look like as we walk through the story of Scripture, um, God's story that we get to be a part of, right? But as we end, I'm just going to stop and, and we'll leave it here. If, uh, if you're familiar with apologetics at all, and apologetics doesn't mean we apologize. The word apologetics means we um, argue for our faith, right? We, we use uh, the, the term apologetics to mean it's these defenses of the Christian faith. There's a defense of creation. Um, it's called the tele teleological argument. And it, it, you've heard this maybe before, but it goes like this. You're walking through, bless you, you're walking through the forest, and on the ground you see this beautiful gold pocket watch. You pick up the pocket watch. You look at it the expert craftsmanship of it, the engraving on it. It has words. You open it up. 
It's keeping perfect time. You crack open the back and you notice all of the dials and all of the mechanisms that are working together in perfect harmony to help it keep time. Do you sit back and do you marvel at the wonderful chance and randomness that must have brought all of these components together, weathered the casing just so to create the words of engraving, and just marvel at the chance of it all? Or do you look at it and instead marvel at, at, at the watchmaker's ability, at the beauty of the watchmaker's creation? You inherently know it's not random. You inherently know it's not chance. You inherently know it was created intimately. It was created with a purpose. Here's my challenge for you. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? What do you marvel at when you look in the mirror? I know what you're thinking. You're looking at me going, Matt, what do you marvel at when you look in the mirror? (laughs) That I got Carrie. No. What do you marvel at when you look in the mirror? It's not randomness. It's not chance. When you look in the mirror, here's what I want you to marvel at. Signpost two, as we walk through the story of Scripture, God's story that we are a part of. When you look in the mirror, I want you to marvel at this. You weren't randomly created. You're not some survival of the fittest. You're not some random chance. When you look in the mirror, I want you to marvel at the fact that you were created intimately, carefully, lovingly, by a God in heaven who created everything and wants to know you personally. And if you're confused about how that works, then I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. And we are going to get there through this series, but if you want to skip ahead, I would love to talk to you after the service right up here and talk to you about how through Jesus Christ, you can know God personally. This God that created you intimately and carefully and lovingly, that you see this when you look in the mirror, that he wants a relationship with you. He wants to be personal to you, and that happens through Jesus. I'm going to pray with us and dismiss us. Thanks for being here this morning, and I can't wait to get to these next signposts with you. Heavenly Father, God, you are good and gracious and kind. We thank you for speaking this universe, this existence, this world into creation. And God, we we honor you that you chose to make human beings as the apex of that creation. And we thank you for the privilege that it is to be created, designed to walk in lockstep with you, our creator. Father, we just love you and we thank you. And I pray that if there's people here that don't know how valuable they are, that don't look in the mirror and marvel at the fact that you have created them intimately and lovingly and carefully, Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will draw them close to yourself and that you'll whisper that truth into their heart of hearts. And Father, if there are those here that don't know you personally, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you will draw them to yourself, convict them of the fact that they're lost, convict them of their need for redemption, God, and, and, and bring them forward. Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done, and we thank you for what you continue to do in our lives. Amen. Thank you. Have a great rest of your Sunday.